Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I am your host Scott Challoner today and joining me first and foremost on the programme this morning is Charlene Mokes, a director at Number 10 Hair, a hair salon based in Ludlow, Shropshire. Um, Charlene, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thank you ever so much for joining joining us. Ah, no problem. Yeah, it's um, quite exciting to to be able to chat, really. Yeah, it's a real pleasure for us um, having you join us on the air as well, Charlene. And the whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really focus on that. And considering that this generation of business leaders is going through, I'm sure you'll agree, one of the greatest challenges of our time in the shape of the COVID-19 situation, I think it would be a good place to start there and just ask to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your business operations over the last few months. Because in the services industry, as you are, I can imagine they've been some quite incredible challenges yeah it's been a it's been quite a quite a challenge throughout really I think um when we when we had the initial obviously you know decision well put upon us to close and to to go into lockdown you know we were were fortunate that we had the the chancellor you know basically saved our bacon with the you know the furlough scheme the grants um but, but then it was still very unknown. I think we just thought, you know, is this going to be a, a, four, a four week thing? You know, it's it's just been, a, you're just navigating day to day almost with it. Um, financially, that gave me kind of reassurance that, you know, the staff, I've got kind of 10 staff, all of which are employed. You know, that gave me that, that just, you know, as I say, reassurance that I knew they were going to get paid. Um and also for myself, being a director, you know, I, I could get the furlough. It, you know, it, it just it was a, you know, it just helped so much. But day to day, it was tricky in the other way in that we, the, the business I've got, it's a commercial property. We also live on the premises, so it kind of went a little bit deeper than the business side of, of the concern because it's a, it's mortgaged. We live here. I live with my family. I've got two small children, so it was it was quite a concern as to whether we you know we were going to have to move house or we're going to lose the business we're going to lose our home so it kind of went a little bit deeper for us my husband was fortunate to carry on working but um yeah it's been quite quite traumatic probably is is the right right way to put it Mm. and thinking of that sort of traumatic side of things I suppose during this time there's been a few people looking to you as a business leader employees of yours who maybe been thinking well I need a little bit of inspiration and a little bit of direction here a little bit of certainty as to what's going to go on amid all this worry but when the information isn't always clear it can be a little bit of a difficult situation can't it so when you do need that little bit of sort of inspiration for yourself where is it that you tend to look to for that? Well, I've, I've joined the NHBS, which is um, the Federation for Hairdressers and Beauty, and it's been an absolute saviour. You know, it gives us, it, it clears everything up. You know, obviously when the government are doing their announcements, you know, it's quite generic and it, it's not that specific, but the Federation break it down. They issue nearly daily reports on exactly what's happening, what how, how we're going to be affected as an industry, and that I've, I've gone to them. But also social media myself, you know, I've joined forums on Facebook and um, just other salon owners and we've all kind of helped each other you know and just even private messaging as well as the forums that for me has been you know amazing really because you, you know you're not on your own you know we're all we're all in it together 
you know, as an industry and as a, a nation. And I think without that, I, I would have struggled more. But my staff have been, you know, obviously supportive, just, you know, they were more relaxed about the financial side. But, you know, yeah, it's it, it's been tricky. But the, the social media side of it for me was my, my kind of outlet and my where I went to, really. And even if we fast forward, say, two or three years and COVID-19 is no longer an issue, we've maybe found a cure or a vaccine for the virus and the days of social distancing do eventually end. Can you see the industry ever really going back to the way that it was? Or do you think that sort of natural caution is always going to lead to a few of these sort of working procedures still being in place, such as the uh, the hand sanitizer in premises, masks, etc.? Yeah, I think, I mean, we've as an industry, we're always, you know, we're always sterilizing, you know, all our utensils, everything like that. Everything is kind of, you know, it's always part of our kind of health and safety. And, it, you know, it, you, you're trained in that way anyway. This is just stepped it up a gear. I think maybe, yes, for, for kind of clients, just security on how they feel when they come in. I, you know, it, it's probably not a bad thing that it will happen, but. You know, I'd like to think that we'll get back to some kind of normality with the kind of PPE type of, mm. of wearing the masks, wearing the visors, because that, you know, I mean, the medical people, you know, the NHS, they do it day to day. And, it's, you know, I worked on Saturday and I was in for, well, from nine till seven all day with a mask and a visor. And it's very tiring. And I think that I'm happy with the sanitizer, I think, and just the sterilizing down. But I'd like to think we can start to move away from, from the full on PPE that we're having mm. to go through at the moment. Yeah, it's certainly going to be an interesting time as we sort of move through the pandemic and hopefully we can start to uh, to leave um, all of this uh, behind eventually. Um, mm. If we move on now just to address the theme of leadership, just in that little bit more broader sense, uh, Charlene, I always like yeah. to ask the question to guests that come onto the programme, what do you feel a leader's role actually is? If I do say the word leader, what does that actually mean to you? I think it's just... Um... Oh, it's quite a tricky one, that isn't it? Just enabling everyone to feel secure within their role, that they know they've got support day to day, they've got someone they can look to. That if you know, if for anything, as well as COVID, as well as anything within the industry or with any kind of industry, they've got someone they can look to that you can just guide them through. And growth, I think, is important, especially in our industry, because people, you know, we, we, most of my staff have come to me from, you know, apprenticeships, apprentices, and, you know, we've they've trained and they've grown. And they've, I think it's just ensuring that you, you're constantly aware of what they need as an individual. Mm. So as a leader, I like to think I try and listen to everybody and, and just, yeah, give everyone security and confidence within within their work, really. I think what this recent situation with COVID-19 has shown is the value of hindsight, isn't it? But it's really reminded us that whether we're in um, government positions, whether we're running businesses, whether we're influential people in our communities, leadership is about learning, isn't it? It's a constant learning process and you're always embracing learning curves, trying to improve. You're never a finished article, are you? There's always something else that you can learn. Definitely. And and for me personally, you know, we've I constantly, you know, I'm always, as I say, NHBS has been amazing. We've made some support from our suppliers. You know, we're a wellness salon. We use, you know, their kind of business business advice and education. I think, and again, it's just education and that should never stop. And I feel that really quite strongly within, we have people coming to train, I think. And for me personally, I, I need that. And I just try and pass that on to everybody within the, within the salon. 
I suppose when you're making the decision to sort of go into business for yourself, you know that there's going to be some challenges along the way. But I suppose something the scale of this was never necessarily um, on the uh, the agenda at that time. Um, but just going back that little bit further, uh, Charlene, um, what was it that sort of made the decision for you to sort of pursue getting your own salon and going into business for yourself? What would you say was the moment the penny dropped when you thought this is the way forward for me? Uh, funnily enough, I, my mum signed my record of achievement that I'd written when I was 14 at school. And I've always wanted to be here at a hairdresser and see exactly what it said. And it said, on one day, I'd like to wear my own hair salon. So it's obviously always been something I've, I've aimed for. But I worked for, you know, another another business for 10 years before I set up on my own. And um, I managed that salon. And I just think I just wanted to, just to, to get my teeth into it a little bit more. And, and just, yeah, it was the next natural step, really. I was ready to do it. And having made that step and also dealt with a challenge of this magnitude, if you were to actually give some advice to somebody who is maybe looking to start their own business themselves, perhaps someone in the younger generation in particular, what sort of advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success? I would say just preparation and just, just obviously no one can plan for what's happened. It's been, you know, who could see it coming, but just day to day, just, yeah, plan ahead, be one step ahead of, of your finances and, and it's those kind of little little security things that will, will help to keep you afloat really because, you know, you never know what, you know, you can have a busy day, you can have a quiet day, it can be, it's just planning and just making sure that you're you're just one step ahead I think really. And just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, having talked about the past a little bit there, it only serves that we talk about the uh, the next 12 months. Um, we know, of course, that we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living and a new way of working until hopefully we can find a cure or a vaccine to the, uh, the COVID-19 virus. But um, in this next sort of year-long period, where do you see the business being, Charlene, in 12 months' time? And what is it that you're really hoping to achieve? I'd like to see growth, to be honest. I mean, I feel that the kickstart is going to help us, you know, with the, getting another apprentice. I'm constantly trying to grow. Um, I feel that as hairdressers, we've, we've had there's been a newfound respect for what we do, really, because it, it's not only the kind of the actual physical feeling of getting your hair done, it's the mental side of it. You know, mm. you, you build a relationship. And I think from a feedback from a lot of my clients, it has been that they've really missed it. And it's just that it feels slightly more normal even with the PPE so forward I think growth I just I'd love to think that we can get some more training on board and yeah just just really really go for it I really feel that having that kind of three month closure you know it it gave me a newfound I think if that's the word but yeah I, I'm really passionate now that you know it's a fantastic industry to be in mm. you know it's it's sociable it's it's creative it's amazing and I hope that schools push the kind of apprentice schemes because I think that is in in any industry I think that that's what youngsters need now is just get get into the job get know what it's all about so I I hope to see growth really that's my personal plan and I certainly wish you all the best um, in that endeavour Charlene let's keep our fingers crossed that it will be positive trajectory for the business over the next year and in fact I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in this next year and have you back on the show with us just to catch up on how things are getting on oh yeah that'd be amazing that'd be lovely yeah that'd be great Mm. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. I've really enjoyed having you joining us on the air today. And most importantly as well, until we do hopefully speak again in future, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. 
Yeah, thank you very much. You too. Thank you. And I reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and others and be considerate with the lifting of restrictions because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, I was speaking on today's programme to Charlene Mokes, director at Number 10 Hair in Shropshire. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, during his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to secured the ashes both at home and away in Australia as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history. Since retiring from playing he has become director of cricket for the England and Wales cricket board and a champion for mental health causes. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew himself and that is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood services to sport just last year so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus dress for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus Rescothic who gave me that nickname ah. it was actually mark butcher uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, 
it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly 
It was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, 
being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many, um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself... Um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you, mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in twenty fifteen, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach. Was was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so f so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, freshly school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become 
avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, fathers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death Mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, 
Uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, and you're wearing re uh, wearing red. So what what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway. No, I think, but um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.